0: Welcome to the RazorWire podcast, where we discuss all things in the information security and cybersecurity world, from current events and trends through to commentary from experts in the field, providing vital advisory on what it is to work in the information security and cybersecurity space. Hi and welcome to another RazorWire. We're here to discuss a whole plethora of topics and today what we're going to do is we're going to discuss how to negotiate with ransomware groups. We're going to maybe have a little bit of a discussion about ransomware itself, you know, maybe a little bit of history behind it and then we're going to kind of barrel into what happens if you actually get done over by a ransomware group and you have to sit there and negotiate with the, the actual group itself. So, I have an expert panel of people here today, Richard, Cassidy, and Oliver Rochford. Richard, do you want a quick brief intro to yourself?
1: Sure. Uh, Good to be back again, James. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, First time with uh, my esteemed ex-colleague, of course, Oliver Rochford. So I'm Richard Cassidy. I uh, currently work with a large uh, security information event management uh, vendor, heading up uh, kind of pre- and post-sales execution strategy. Been in the industry for 22 years, started way back in networking security and building Cisco WAM networks for ISPs and quickly moved into, you know, the virtual wave and then into endpoint security and now into cloud security. Um, So seeing lots of things come and go and other things stick and uh, looking forward to this chat.
0: Fantastic. And Oliver, I mean, you know, you've introduced yourself so many times now, I might as well do it one last time. Yeah, so, so
2: you know, Oliver Oxford. Um, I'm currently chief futurist at a small, really cool startup called Tenzia. Um, we're, we're working with basically, you know, security data engineering stuff. And uh, I've been in the industry 22, uh, 23 years as well now. Wrote "Hacking for Dummies" first and second editions. Um, worked at Gartner's analyst and worked for a bunch of vendors like Qualys, Tenable, um, Securonix. And uh, yeah, you know, ransomware has been. Uh, I grew up with ransomware. Let's say it that way. Grew up at the same time as ransomware.
0: Well, I think it's growing up with everybody else at this moment in time. I mean, you know, just recently, depending upon obviously when this goes live, we've just had the report of JD Sports who have now experienced some difficulty at the beginning of this year. We had The Guardian who reported they were experiencing some difficulty in this space. Obviously, sort of in 2022, uh, there was a whole plethora of companies that were coming forward and, you know, admitting that, that, that they'd been... Uh, hit by it, I think a lot of it was obviously because uh, you know on the breach forums and various different forums where people kind of you know let go information that they may have gotten with little snippets just to to wet the whistle uh, and to try and force those companies that have been compromised to to actually pay up. What are your views on on where this is going? I mean, we had a kind of brief conversation with some people in in various different podcasts about this maybe a lot earlier on last year, and we we predicted that it would probably rise rather significantly in popularity. But what's your view at the moment on where we are and how dangerous it is?
2: It's a funny view. If we look at where we are, right, it's democratised preach damage. I think that's the interesting thing. This is something where... Uh, it's hit a large amount of different companies. But to me, the attack itself isn't as interesting as the economics behind it. And the truth is that we wouldn't have ransomware if there was a way to monetize it. Mm. You know, crypto is a very good example. Without the rise of Bitcoin, we would not have had a rise of ransomware. If you can't get away with that money... You know, you're not going to go to these amounts of efforts and create a commercial, professional cybercrime as a service economy if you're going after Amazon vouchers. Mm. That would have been essentially the kind of prepaid credit card or or Amazon voucher would have been the means of exchange before because anything else you could have traced. And so I, I think these two go hand in hand. It's not just about the technology aspect. People were able to hack companies like that before. The incentive was lacking. And so it's this professionalization, the fact that it's really an economic factor which is driving it, I find quite interesting and something which we, we need to take on board. We think it's a technical problem. It's a very techy way of looking at it. But in reality, it's a much broader problem. And the solution isn't just technical
0: either. Fantastic. Richard, what about you? Yeah, so I, I concur
1: with the, the kind of ecosystem making it easier now for ransomware groups to monetize what they do. But also, I think, you know, the elephant in the room is AI. And I'm going to talk about ChatGPT because I have to. It's getting far too easy now for people that have a outside interest to become insiders in in the kind of malware, ransomware world. And what I mean by that is times are hard um, and certain economies and, and certain demographics of individuals are struggling. And that leads to diversification of how we make funds and how we, we build income. And unfortunately... When you're somebody that needs to do something to kind of, you know, feed the family, as it were, and I know I'm bringing it back down to grassroots, you're going to look at other ways to achieve that money. And what better way than to look at how to automate your way to riches through AI tools and looking at things like ChatGPT, for example, it's just too easy now to to take existing code and ask AI to rewrite it and put your spin on it or to remove Indicators of compromise that, that code would normally have been detected uh, by with traditional defense tools. You know, what I'm saying is it's just getting a little bit too easy now, I think, for specific types of individuals to get involved in this game. You know, and ransomware as a service is something we should all be relatively worried about. But I think, you know, the, the rise of the script kiddies and, and the less sophisticated attackers. Uh, jumping on this bandwagon is also a huge concern, fueled by what Oliver's just said, the ability to monetize it so much more easily. So I I think we're up against not a different problem, but a rise of an issue that um, is is going to certainly get the door knocking a lot more for organizations that potentially were were not seeing that um, over the coming years, uh, I have no doubt.
0: We do seem to to have hit a bit of a perfect storm, really, with just coming out of a situation which has really affected the, the economy, uh, you know, the world. It's really reduced people's living standards. We're still experiencing that, whether in the Depression, whether we're in recession, whether we're not, depending upon who's manipulated. What I won't go into, that's for the economists out there. But with the cost of living and what have you rapidly rising, you know, it's something that I've, I've, we've, I've talked on this podcast about before, about, uh, I think it was, one of the criminal minds ones where we were discussing why people get into it, why people do it. And and absolutely, I mean, if you've got good skill sets in the technological sector, and all of a sudden you find you can't feed your kids with the day work, you know, the, the average day work that you're doing, and it's getting really serious, then the likelihood of going down that route rapidly rises. Then we have the technological side of things where we're going through a, a rapid change in the way that we consume our technology. We're going through a rapid increase in the ability of our technology to, to advance in many respects as well. You know, you mentioned AI and AI tools. And we, again, we've discussed it on this podcast before. I think, you know, Oliver was, was involved in that. And we, I mean, we even discussed what happens when the bad guys get hold of the same kind of tool sets that, uh, we're starting to see now, I mean, you know, Chat GPT has already been mentioned, almost mentioned to death in, in LinkedIn and something and the rest of it, but there's no reason why somebody can't take that model and take out all the ethics behind it and utilize that to create and develop code, as you say, Richard, that, that can help circumvent technology far, far faster and far quicker. And then finally, we've got this situation where the whole way that we operate as businesses and organizations have shifted rather dramatically from concentrations of people in the similar kind of office with a smaller remote workforce to a predominantly remote workforce with a smaller contingent of people who meet up on a regular basis. And we've kind of discussed all of these different elements together. And here we are, you know, we're, we're sitting here experiencing more breaches than we've ever seen in the past. Ransomware is gone nuts. And, and as Oliver said, you know, with cryptocurrency and the ability for cryptocurrency to mean, you know, payment can actually be made now in, in large amounts without being caught, whether you believe in cryptocurrency, whether you like it, whether you don't, it's immaterial at this point when, when we're talking in the context of, uh, you know, sort of criminal activity and ransom. But we are hitting that perfect storm,
2: I think the, the, the making the tools, automating it, it, it's one component. But if you think of cybercrime actually as an act of, of of criminality, it's not just a single thing. There's always different components that go into it. You have to be able to identify targets or target women. The trends we've seen is that the, the groups are actually soliciting insiders to help them. They're going out to insiders and saying, hey, 20, 40% of the ransom, you give us access with your credentials, we'll let you in. And that's the interesting bit. It's not something that's easy really to protect against, right? But ultimately, what this boils down to, and and this is the difference two years ago, if you look at Robert Rodriguez, you know, like that was the the guy who got twenty years for being involved in breaching Home Depot and then a whole bunch of credit card fraud, they needed actual criminals to go off and take the clone cards, go into the shops, buy boutique gear, sell it on eBay at a loss. That's highly complicated. You don't need that as a hacker. No. You can basically, you can can go in, you can can buy a hack-compromised server from one cybercriminal on the darknet. You can buy a ransomware as a service component from the others. You can install an exploit kit which you've rented to deploy it. You can then take the Bitcoin and you can go to a Tumblr service on the darknet, which will launder the money for you. And then you can go to a a, a darknet-enabled more traditional criminal who will actually get it into physical cash for you, because, you know, that also needs to be done. No point do you need to interact with another person. Not physically, which you used to have to, which was a limiter for hackers. It was Mm -hmm. hard to monetize, easy to get the credit cards, hard to turn them into currency. That's changed. But the other driver, and we make it out as though it's basically some desperate guy sat there in India or in Russia who's making it, but it's not. It's also North Korea, anyone on the sanction list who needs foreign currency. Mm. That's one of the other things which is fueling this, Is we're seeing with the Russia-Ukraine conflict in the moment, where it's being used to basically funnel dollars via the Bitcoin into the Russian economy or to use a Bitcoin to buy stuff internationally on the market. So it's a whole chain of economics behind it. But I say the economics because none of this would exist if you didn't have a financial opportunity. People have been able to do this for a long time. The technology behind ransomware is dead simple still dead simple, you could hack it out in Python or Go as people are doing it, you know. So, so it's interesting, but this whole professionalism and the sums involved, billions of dollars, it is because you're able to monetize it, if, at least for the hacker in a safe and reliable way without needing anybody else involved.
0: And it's gotten easier as well before I go over to Richard. I'm just outlining something that Richard said, you know, the, the whole as-a-service function. Before, sort of years ago, getting a team together to do like group hacking and all the rest of it. There was a lot of trust involved. There was a lot of kind of that. I mean, you know, that's how people quite often got caught. Somebody would infiltrate the gang and then, you know, figure out who they were and then they get arrested. Now with as a service, it's, it's in everybody's best interest not to do that. And so they all protect their own environments. So rather than, you know, having somebody you know, launder the money from Bitcoin into physical cash and relying on, I don't know, Dave around the court, you know, somebody you met, met in a dark net web. And let's face it, they're all there. They're all criminals. So they're not exactly the most reliable. To having it as a service who, who provides support, they provide guarantees because if they don't do it and they do something wrong, then nobody else will come to them. So we have this beehive of small cells of different kind of as-a-service functions that you you don't need to have a team anymore. It could be you and your mate or whatever, and boom, you've got a whole economy. You can get paid. You can get the code developed for you. Yes, you might have to have a little bit of cash to kind of kick it off or a bit of Bitcoin but, but you can do all of that. And then you've got all the as-a-service functions.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, as-a-service is everywhere, all over cybersecurity, on, on the good and bad side of the fence. Um, mm. And to Oliver's earlier point, you know, there's so many posts on, you know, various dark web chat forums where they are soliciting individuals to uh, offer up credentials, as, as Oliver said, and and they're even being very specific on the types of companies they want, Right. It needs to be this many employees. It can't be a medical company or it can't be this company. It has to have this kind of revenue, um, which is, is really cheeky in some respects, but just goes to show you that, you know, how it's progressed from we'll take anything to no, no, we want this particular type of company. Um, but there's there's a growing trend of criminal opera, operationalization that people need to be aware of. And, I, and I'm going to go back to the, the, the county lines and the drug running groups, right, that used to, and still do use children to move uh, drugs between particular counties. I've seen some very concerning things through my own research in particular Discord channels and things like this with teenagers and, and younger people than that being used in these kind of coding groups and groomed in a way to become part of a, a ransomware and and kind of, you know, uh, more nefarious sort of attacking group way that uses these individuals essentially as mules to launch attacks and and to do things and very similar to what we're seeing with the kind of county lines movement and, and the continents and so and that's interesting and, and and the reason they're doing that um is they're targeting the children of people in organizations that they want to breach because they know that people are working from home, right? These groups, mm. they know that dad or mum at various company has their, their laptop on the same wi-fi network and if they can just get you know a foothold onto the child's machine or pc and most children have their own laptops or pcs right then it's an easy jump post environment to start infiltrating corporate materials from home and these are organized criminal groups doing this um and it's 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 an insider threat vector that I don't think we've talked about. We've always talked about compromise. Oh, you're, what, you're kids. <laughs> right. Your children <killed> are <laughs> literally a target to the organizations that, that these people work from. And it, it's just astonishing to see how these groups have really gone way below, you know, and there, you are, there are there are no moral lines. I think they've been blurred, if they were there, they're certainly not there anymore, in how these groups are operating. So Yeah, as a service has gone away from just software, it's now moving into social engineering or back into social engineering, but much lower down the food chain, which is to your children. So something we need to consider, if we haven't already, we really need to wake up to what's going on here. Yeah, it's also a response by the attackers
2: to improving defenses, right? If you look at some of the more recent trends, living off the land has gone up quite considerably, generally in ransomware, automated malware, right? The other thing which has changed is that this insider soliciting, as you mentioned, they're using thermographics. They're trying to avoid critical infrastructure because of the, well, because the governments have started really going after them for it, right? They're trying to avoid targets where they get bad PR. Ideally, cyber insurance. That's, That's also highly interesting, but it's just this thing, it's this whole construct where you just notice they are getting far better at this. And a lot of it is really down to the, also targeted on just evading defenses. The focus on privileges, on credentials, on insiders is all designed to bypass technical controls. And even there, they are, um, you know, it's escalating. You can, you can see it very clearly that it's escalating, that the attackers are trying to much more concerted to get past all of the budget that we're spending on security. And that's, that's the dangerous thing. What do you do with your kids? Do you surveil them? Do we start? Doing security monitoring on our kids at home. Um, it's already a tricky topic when we're talking about insider employee monitoring, for example.
0: But doesn't this bring on to sort of like a really insidious area? I mean, at the moment it's it's you know, for monetary value, but you know, it could easily move into, you know, ransoming people in your in your family. If you know somebody's wife has been off having fun elsewhere or the husband has been off having fun elsewhere. And somebody gets in contact and says, Oh, by the way, if you don't compromise, help us compromise your, your wife's laptop or your husband's laptop or your work laptop or whatever, or your son's could be that, then we'll, we'll destroy your life. I mean, I had a, I had a friend of mine who got in touch with me asking for, you know, assistance because, you know, her son had been, very unwise in some respects, and in, in some of the interactions that he'd had, and and was having threats against him that pictures and information would be released to his school friends and to his the local in place that he was in, unless he he paid them a certain amount of money. Now, obviously, they didn't. I told them what told them what to do with that. But but there's no reason why it couldn't go down that route with targeted attacks. We've been talking for a long time now, in the industry, about how our social networks have allowed us like linkedin and facebook and all the rest of it it's so easy to get information on anyone these days unless you're completely divorced from it and let's face it professionally on linkedin i know very few people who are you know you can find out who's in my company we can find out who's in yours you find out who you're connected to that kind of thing obviously it's easy to spot people who you know have maybe might be friends with you, you then check out on LinkedIn and check those people and so on and so forth. Are we really getting to the point where we're starting to really have to worry about security, not only for from a technical viewpoint and from a direct attack vector, that side-channel attacks from family, friends, that kind of thing could become a reality. I mean, I know we're here to talk about negotiation with ransomware groups, we'll get on to that in a minute, but it's really frightening what I'm hearing from, with what Richard was just saying. Is that what we're facing now? Is that the next stage?
1: I mean, this is the thing, right? You almost, as an individual, if you certainly if you're in a high profile position, uh, you've got to understand. It's like the old thing I've always said: to c right? What are you protecting? Who are you protecting it from? Where does it sit, right? And, and as an individual, an organisation. You have to ask yourself could I be a target? And who would I be a target from? And then where you have kind of breach response campaigns within organizations, you know, and that includes PR to all of it. you almost need one for yourself, right? If if I am held to extortion, and and it's not true, how am I going to advertise and and PR my own defense to the organization, Mm. potentially to the social media channels? People don't think about that, because you think it'll never happen to you. And James, I had the same. I had a family member who works at a large financial institution in North England uh, call me up in bits saying, you know, I've been told by this group that they've got pictures of me uh, looking at XYZ, uh, you know, mm. what do I do? Uh, and I said, Look, whether you've done it or not, and I'm not interested, uh, the point is, you know, it would be an enormous mistake to, to pay these demands because you're not dealing with morally sound individuals or groups. Once you pay, you'll always pay. Um, yeah. And they'll always come back because it's easy to extort. But to answer your direct question, you know, absolutely, that they're, they're, they're going to be targeting anything that's going to make you emotionally connected to the scenario. So whether that's extortion of something and here's the thing right sorry to jump around a little bit but no, even, if you, even if you haven't done what you're being accused of doing right the fallout of these accusations within the organization and the family can be significant whilst you're having to kind of prove your innocence and they know this right they they, they psychologically profile their targets you know don't think for a second that it's just a, a single broad stroke paintbrush there are some groups that are like that we know who they are but, but they do know who they're after and they do know the weaknesses and they are psychologically profiling not just the organization but the individuals. Um, and they know that many of us would rather not have the hassle, would pay the $1,000 or whatever it is that we have to pay. Um, but unfortunately, you're opening the floodgates, as we all know, um, and um, it, it's something we've got to think about. So, so the takeaway from me here is um, consider yourself a target always online, but always have a, a breach response plan for yourself that allows you to make sure that, that the industry and your coworkers know that this is just nonsense. It would be never something you'd ever have done. And it's clearly an extortion campaign by X Group. Um, and it's something that we've got to think about, unfortunately, in this day and age.
0: Sense a secondary podcast being created in my brain, even as we're <laughs> discussing this. I mean <laughs> you know, it's it's frightening how how you know the evolution of, of how things are going and yeah, I think I'm, I'm gonna. I'll be contacting you after this one about sitting down and discussing this one in a bit more depth because I think people out there, you know, maybe need to reconsider where their vectors are and how they're a, a adapting and changing. I mean, Oliver, do you want to say anything about that quickly before we move back to the actual subject we were here to discuss?
2: <laughs> Just about like the insider risk component, even if it's inadvertently, because your, your your credentials are used by someone else. It, it's a big aspect of it. Mm. Um, it, it, like credential-based attacks according to most reports have gone up over the last year there's a good reason for that it's just easier for the attacker than trying to actually you know hack something uh, at the same time of course for ransomware it just gives them the ability to spread that ransom and more importantly to poke around you know and the profile has changed you know as Richard mentioned I think so there are certain executives certain important R&D leaders politicians who are trained to watch out for compromise somebody sits next to you on a plane gets a bit too chummy you know okay hang on a minute The profiles change for ransomware actors. All they care about is whether you can afford to pay the ransomware. You have cyber insurance, for example. Mm. I think and targeting people in their home, we all have areas where psychologically we feel safe and areas where we feel exposed and we're in alert. The home is not one of them. And that's essentially what, what they're abusing, the psychological profile of I feel safe in my home with my family, with my children. It's a really nefarious psychological way of approaching it because, of course, on purpose, you've got your guard down and you're probably never going to develop a guard if I start suspecting my child. You know, where am I living at that point? But, yeah, I think Richard makes a really interesting point. It's almost like a paranoia thing that gets triggered there, you know.
0: I'm going to be hitting you guys up for this one to to, to record relatively soon. But anyway, let's draw it back. Let's pull it back. Negotiating with ransomware groups. So... Let's do a hypothetical. You're an organization. There you are, working away one day, minding your own business, creating the widgets, the gadgets, the virtual ones, the actual ones, whatever. Everything seems to be peachy. All of a sudden, boom. You either get the email through, you get the thing that crops up on the screen. We've all seen exactly how it tends to happen. Different ransomware types do different things, but ultimately you you end up with, with a, I have compromised you email or set up on the screen. We're going to be wanting certain amount of Bitcoin for us to A, release the decryption code to decrypt your stuff. B, to not actually leak it. I know some gangs will actually do two ransoms. They'll do one for the decryption and then they'll do one for the not leaking it. But there you are. Maybe you're the CISO, the CEO, the MD, chief of technology, and you sat there and this has happened. What's next? What's the what's the, the process? Let's go with Richard, because I think Richard's got a, a pretty good view on how this kind of ha- you know, happens. He hangs out in the darker parts of the web.
1: <laughs> if my reputation precedes me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean that um, in a nice way, Richard. No, no, of course, of course,
1: yeah. Um, so I think, you know, for the listener's benefit, I always like to take it from the position of, we know all this stuff goes on, but, but what, what can we do in that nightmare situation? And one of the things I've always said is is the breach didn't happen when the attacker showed up, right? Uh, and breach being all various forms of breaches, ransomware, one of them. Happened long before. You were, you were already a breach target based upon how you built your security and reporting and audit systems way back when you were building and, and evolving your environment. And so, you know, I think before you get into the negotiation phase or should you with ransomware, there's a couple of things you've got to think about, right? The first is, do you know you're protecting, who you're protecting it from? And I always say this, and people get sick of hearing me say it, but if you don't know those things and you don't know what you're up against, it's very difficult to build a program uh, that's effective around it. So, you know, I always look at these things. I always tell CISOs to look at these things uh, in terms of ransomware specifically. First is, do you back up your business, Okay. Do you do complete backups? Where are those backups? Are they encrypted? Are they offline backups, etc., cetera, etc.? Cetera. Could they be fall foul to particular types of ransomware attacks? Okay. Second is if you are approached by a ransomware group that says you've been hit and we want so much money, trust but verify. Old Russian proverb. You know, don't don't take their word for it. I've seen ransomware campaigns where the organisation hasn't been ransomware, uh, but they've created some fantastic pages with a, a countdown timer and and the typical hacker skull that says everything's going to die in 24 hours. Nobody verified that was the case. They unfortunately paid a ransomware fee only to find there was absolutely no ransomware at the organisation, and it, it was just a a very easy kind of smash and grab attack. Um, So verify, right? Ask for a verification. You know, it goes back to the old um, hostage negotiation tactics, right? How do I know, you know, so-and-so is okay? How do I know you have my data? Where, Where does it sit? And the reason you'd want to know that is not just for you to verify, do I have to pay? It's, oh, okay, so they've shown me snippets of where this data might sit. That's going to help you in kind of trying to find what's going on and where it is, potentially involving law enforcement in maybe getting some of your data back. And then we have got to think about and I know insurance is another podcast potentially, but do you have liability insurance? Do, would it pay for this kind of thing? Will it help you get back in your feet? You've got to understand that. And, and cyber insurance is another big challenge. And and some will say they'll pay for ransomware attacks, but my goodness, the fine print is it gives them every out they could possibly get. And then your operations, right? So. It's how can you make sure as an organization that you can verify all footholds and routes of attack for a ransomware perspective? These are data points you've got to have before you can even start to ask the question of how do I negotiate with these, with this ransomware organization? And if I should negotiate at all. So, you know, that's my, my first kind of response to, to this particular uh, example of kind of what you need to do at the business ops level before you even start considering the conversations with ransomware groups um, and how to deal with them.
2: I think as Rich alluded to, right, there are different types of impact from a ransomware outbreak. There's the operational component. Can I operate? There's the component of am I going to be losing customer data, their associated fines, and what's the reputational damage? Each one of these is going to apply to companies in different ways. For example, operational. You might have backups, in which case you can restore operations. You might not have to pay for that. Of course, customer data leaking is a different question, right? If you're, if you're going to be fined, you can be fined if you're gross negligent and so on. I think that's a more difficult one to actually mitigate by yourself. You might just have to swallow the fine. The reputational damage, if I'm honest, in most cases nowadays, ransomware actors are so successful. People aren't shocked anymore if you get hit. I think detonating the bomb. Yeah. Detonating the bomb yourself and going out ahead and saying, Hey, we've been breached is the easiest way of taking basically the, the teeth out of that one. Providing you can restore your operations, and that's really important because, out a spike, they might then retaliate. But if if that reputational damage to me is the least one right right now, if, but uh, if you're of course if you're a healthcare service, a healthcare provider, that operational is the one which is going to hit you the most, and that's the one which is going to be most acute, and probably the only excuse I would give for considering pain. Because at the end of the day, it's not legal to pay in most countries. We have to be honest about this, right? It's not completely illegal. It's a bit of a gray zone. And you have to balance carefully your users and patients or customers, your your investors, your your owners, and, of course, your business. And these have to be balanced carefully amongst. I, I'd normally say don't pay. You're encouraging it. Yeah. But it's also not the company's fault that law enforcement is ineffective in tackling them.
0: There's a couple of things to unpack there, really. I mean, you know, first and foremost, I do know that there are a number of groups, not the nastier ones, maybe Richard could confirm, they purposely don't go for children's hospitals. Yeah. I think I read about one that they got done by an affiliate of a, of a quite a well-known ransomware group, and the, the well-known ransomware group. Basically told the 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 affiliate group where to go and gave the decryption key directly to the organisation. Says so sorry about that. They weren't. We we don't do that kind of thing. Which it's heartening to know that there are certain services that that some of them won't go after. But um, obviously, you know, if you're a commercial organisation, you're you're kind of screwed, really. I mean, you're you're not going to get that. I mean, you know, I remember when the Colonial Pipeline got got done, and and all of a sudden, you suddenly saw the ransomware groups kind of shrink and disappear for a short period of time. They kind of went into the underground and disappeared because it's like, ooh, that's a little bit too high profile for us. We don't really want that at all, you know. Obviously, pre-prep for all of it, make sure your backups are done, you know, encrypt for instance, you know, one of the things we recommend to a lot of our customers um, who are concerned about this, at least make sure your data is encrypted and your keys aren't stored somewhere where somebody else can get them, you know, that kind of thing. There you are, you know, you've been compromised. Maybe they've got your backups. You're the CISO. Your MD saying, my £20 million a year business is about to come horribly crashing down if I can't get up and running within the next three days. Also, we're a bit worried that they may have gotten some of the communications that we had about i don't know a large deal where we were criticizing the universal Studios management you know similar to a another company who had a it wasn't ransomware obviously but but they had certain inf- information release you know that affected their share price it affected their relationships with with different celebrities and stars. Where do we go from there? That's that's where we are at the moment. You've been told we've got to make this go away. What's what's the next step?
1: Yeah, it's it's an interesting one, and thankfully there there does appear to be honour amongst thieves we talked about children's hospitals at the moment, you know. But anything can change in this game. But but let's yeah. talk about your example. The industry will always tell you don't pay ransomware, right? You open the floodgates to further extortion, and the simple answer should be no, right? But that's not always the case, because that example you just raised is a really good uh, story that, that will play out to a lot of organisations. And in some cases, you do kind of have to pay. And I know that sounds very... Uh, it's a very contentious point to raise. But the reason is, it has got it's a balance of risk for me. If I'm dealing with a group that has a reputation for releasing the things I need released if I pay then that will influence my decision. But one of the things that's missing in the industry is, and I'm gonna go back to the FBI and negotiation of hostages. You know, if there's ever a hostage situation, every police force in the world has trained negotiators to deal with the people that are holding the hostages to ransom, right? Because it's the same, it's ransomware, but, but on a physical level we don't have the same in the cybersecurity industry. It's an underserved part of the market. You call up your local police agency in the UK or your relevant law enforcement of the countries and say, I've just had a ransomware extortion attempt. Uh, They're demanding XYZ. You're on Mm. your own. There's not many negotiators that sit in the cybersecurity divisions of these organizations, and I mean the law enforcement, um, that can turn around and say, okay, hey, I know how to negotiate. We're going to do it this way. Here's the way that we, we discuss and, and, and move forward. So you kind of are left to figure it out. And and so the only way that you can do that is by is by balancing the risk game. So, you know, if all these other things aren't in play, if we haven't got good secure backups, we can't recover our data within 24, 48 hours, whatever it may be, we haven't built a resilient infrastructure, or we're not sure even if we do that, are we going to rebuild the infrastructure with the, the footholds and the, you know, the, mm. the, the data entry points that, that they say they have already sort of existing in our in our backups. So the risk is, if I pay this group, are, is this group likely to, 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 to fess up the data I need? You'll know that because you, you'll hopefully know who you're dealing with and have negotiated that information. And B, yeah, is the downtime that you're experiencing that detrimental to your business, that, you know, uh, the, the the however many Bitcoin you're being asked, mm it's a financial decision for me at that point and it's a risk you're going to have to take if if all things considered are true and you have been breached and you have verified that this is actually indeed a real attack you know what's the cost of recovering that data and getting back up to speed versus paying the ransomware and then what is the risk that they will pay or not it's a really tough decision but that's how it's going to be made it's going to be made on 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 security risk and financial risk
2: I mean, follow on impact as well, right? There are jobs attached to it. You have customers and partners. You also have to weigh that up against it. You can have a moral obligation towards people you're dealing with now or people who may get hit in the future. And to me, the people I'm dealing with now probably has a strong impact, especially because the solution to this doesn't come down to a single company, especially if all it took was someone clicking on an email. Like, you know, I mean, we have to be clear, if... All it took is for someone to click on an email to take your entire company down. You've done a lot of things wrong, I'll be honest with you, right? But, but at the same time, of course, we also know attackers aren't like that. They will spend days now with a human operator trying to, you know, build up their foothold, identify strategic targets. But if you look at the fully automated one. But, but the bigger important thing is just the fact that Bitcoin, you know, who allows an unregulated like, medium of, of, of currency exchange which you can't trace? I'm sorry, right? and you can't make a organization responsible for the fact that that is available to criminals because regulators and law enforcement are letting the speculative bubble go a bit. And, and the second aspect is just the fact that there's this whole supply chain behind it. Patch management, vulnerability assessment, there are no requirements on the, on the manufacturer's side. They've externalized risk 100%. Somebody dropping the ball, it's inevitable. Right, And so we have to, we can't just put the responsibility 100% on the end user. Mm. That's crazy, especially because he can't solve it by himself. All of these things need to be raised a little bit to make it harder. And then in conjunction, we mentioned about honor amongst thieves. There was no honor among thieves. The yes. reason why the ransomware operators went down that turns is because all of a sudden the government paid them attention. And they were not willing to basically take that risk on themselves. It wasn't worth it. But they are still ransomware groups who are targeting hospitals because, of course, they see it as an opportunity if the others aren't targeting it. Mm. And it depends on where you're based, what scruples you have. I wouldn't generalize and say, all ransomware groups aren't doing the targeting. The major ones we're hearing about aren't, you know. There's many things going on, but it's not just an end-user problem that they can solve. So they probably shouldn't be the only ones who are paying for it. And cyber insurance will not work. You cannot insure people walking through a minefield. You can't hedge for, for the risk. You can't spread the risk. You
0: know. Well, you can, but you're going to pay out.
2: Well, the premiums will, will make it unaffordable. At that point, you're probably just better pay off paying the ransom yourself. You know? yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, so, yeah, so, so we need to broaden that with debate. This isn't just a technical problem. It's not just an insider risk problem. It's a problem about how we approach technology in general. And how, you know, economic factors as well, I think, which is why it's so prevalent and why it's so hard to get a hold of. If not, if a single party can't solve this, all the parties haven't even sat down together yet. You know, we haven't looked at what do we need to do across the system to improve this. And um, I, I don't think it's a simple, straightforward fix. In the meantime, what can organizations do, I think is the better question. You're in this very violent, exposed you know, situation, how can you help yourself? What can you do preemptively to make sure that you don't, that you have a stronger negotiation position against the ransomware actors? Because that's the other thing. You have a negotiation position as well. They want yeah.
0: money. Yeah.
2: You know, can you haggle them down as an
1: example? We haven't yeah. even spoken about that. Yeah. That, that's exactly the point I was raising earlier was the, your negotiation ability in these scenarios. These are high stakes scenarios Organizations need to empower a team or an individual, or to seek external consultancy on how to negotiate with these attackers. Because, as Oliver said, if you do that right, you could have, if not, you know, significantly reduce the ransom they're asking for. And the other part of that, you know, if we talk about hospitals, honour amongst thieves. I don't know, I, Oliver. I think there is, in some respects. I tell you why, because you know, back when COVID happened, I was part of a group on LinkedIn that was founded by a very famous still is very uh, one of the, the top ladies in cyber security, where all of the security experts got together and we were supporting NHS in any of the ransomware breaches they would have faced during 2020, 2021. What we were doing, A, was trying to identify targets and, and, and underground campaigns to give them early warning. But then if you were a breach... The things that you could do for these organizations, especially hospitals, is use propaganda to your to your advantage. What I mean by that is go out and, and reach out to the honor that may still exist amongst these thief groups and to their sister and parent and brother and and, sister and child companies, uh, sorry, organizations, and say, look, we're a hospital. This ransomware is is costing X Y Z. We're not able to do these operations for these groups of children and these these adults. These could be your parents, your family. And you'd often find that sometimes these groups would put pressure on one another to either reduce the ransomware to a nominal fee or just hand over the keys altogether. And it's a game that I don't think we play well enough. We just seem to mm. look at the technical aspect and the, the financial cost. And we forget there's a psychology here that we're not playing to in terms of negotiation. So I completely agree with you, Oliver. It's, it's something we've got to start looking at better ransomware negotiations.
0: Yeah we've 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 had some involvement in that and we have a partner um who you know kind of specializes in that space. Now I, I had a chat with them and and they were saying that what tends to happen is you know people forget that it's it in essence it's a, a business negotiation just like anything. Yeah you're not negotiating with particularly nice people obviously if they were nice people they wouldn't be doing what they were doing. But as Oliver said they want money and they want you to pay up. Um, so going in and screaming and shouting and, and, and annoying them, you know, cause some of these groups are a little bit like gamer groups, gamer forum groups. They use the similar kind of language, you know, some of them are are far more professional where they're actually very, very good at the negotiation. It's like, well, okay, tell us a bit more. And something that we've alluded to for for security throughout the whole of of, of time since security began, since cybersecurity became a thing, people do their homework. They already know how much you're insured for because you quite often, you know, will let people know how much it is. They've got analysts that can go out and find all the kind of information that anybody else could find with a bit of digging and a bit of bit of talent. And they've got some very talented analysts. They know what you're worth. They know what you can pay. They've already got a figure in mind. And like any negotiation, you know, as they've got an idea, like a, a range they will go for. So, yes, you can probably get them down, but there's only so far you can get them down before they say no. And they will even give you more time as well. You know, if you're having problems getting the transfer over and getting the Bitcoin, they'll even say, okay, fair enough, we'll give you a little bit more time to get it done. But you have to follow through with what you're saying, as, as I was told. Be honest, as honest as you're willing to be with them. If you're obviously, if you're a, a hospital and you're dealing with kids and sick kids and sick adults or people, you know, with with conditions, yes, you can play that kind of. But we're a, a hospital. We're doing good, and you guys are just causing deaths. You're causing people to suffer, which could get you those decryption keys. But if you're a commercial concern, a shipping company, a software development company, or whatever, you don't have the luxury of that. PR and that that ability. So it just boils down to that negotiation. I mean, one of the things that... When I do my masterclasses on a... a I do it every other Friday for, for, for InfoSec people who want to get into the game. One of the books that I point people at is uh, Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. Very, very, very good book. That ex-FBI negotiator, um, and he's he's he goes into how he used to... And as you say, Richard, you know, find out proof of life, find out what they've got, find out, you know, about them and then talk to them and try and see whether or not you can, you can do something about it. So anybody out there who wants to know a bit about, you know, negotiation, Chris Voss, never split the difference. You know, Richard, if you're not watching this on the screen, has given a thumbs up. And Oliver seems to know who we're talking about as well. Be polite, be reasonably honest. You know, negotiate like you were negotiating, you know, in a, where you don't have a position of power. Yes, you're going to pay. If you're willing to pay, you will pay. Uh, but if you don't, they will do absolutely everything they tell you that they're going to do, assuming they have what they say they're going to have. If they have that info, they will release it. Or they may hold on to it and sell it to the highest bidder. I have seen that a few times. Especially if, if it's a big company or a you know, a, a significant IP, that kind of thing. There's no hard and fast rules from what I can see though.
2: Well, I mean you have
0: to keep in mind if they don't go and expose you, they're also detving their own argument.
2: <laughs> they have to do it to scare other people to pay up. Mm.
1: <laughs> so so it's it's part of the feedback loop, you know? <laughs> it is. But Oliver is spot on, and, and he's raised a very contentious point. And my God, though, is it important. Regulation. I mean, you know, the, the everybody says, oh, it's the NG, it's your problem, you're the company, you're the one that got breached. Well, hold on a second. I didn't develop the software with the bug that allowed the the impact or the breach, and, and nor am I the people that design the blockchain currency environments that mean people can obfuscate wallets, addresses and stuff. So we as governments and, and vendors of software, I think there's a lot they have to answer for and regulation is far too much in their favour and, and I couldn't agree with Oliver more. What's a parallel
2: to me? I always, it always strikes me that piracy is a parallel and, and the response internationally to piracy is something called hostis humanis generis, enemy of all mankind. They prey on everybody so you don't give many safe harbour whatsoever. And in the moment, the problem is they are getting safe harbor in quite a few countries, and that's a predicament. So I'm supposed to pay up as the business, but that ransomware actor has no risk whatsoever. Mm. You can't get at them. You can't get at the money. You can't get at them physically. So it's all very much one-sided. What you expect your government to do, your regulators, your politicians, is to start applying international pressure onto the countries that are basically harboring them. I mean, it's difficult with Russia. North Korea—we've already basically ostracised them, right? We're already—we're already beyond the pale. But there are still other countries where that's not the case. I spoke to a really interesting gentleman a couple of years back who moved from the Met to a large bank, and his job was to watch political campaigns in Eastern Europe because they were attached to cybercriminal groups. And every time they needed to funding for their election campaign, activity went up. And so this 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 combination of legitimate parties, entities. Basically enabling these groups, giving them political shelter, legal shelter, it's still very much a component of why they're able to operate without any issues. And that's also similar to piracy where you know, they had a couple of basically safe havens until we broke them up. But basically not giving them any safe harbour, making sure that money gets stopped in the tracks. That's an important point. And if you can't apply the pressure to them, do it to the money laundering services. Apply the pressure along their supply chain. That's the way to go about it. You know?
0: I think the frightening thing is we're too far along now. I don't think we can anymore we've reached a point where cryptocurrency is a thing love it hate it advocate it don't advocate it it's a thing it's not going away it's it's done now it's there
2: it can be regulated no 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 no, no you can can regulate any government, Bitcoin you know could n- just ban it and say it's not legal tender of course they can
0: well they can ban because it
2: Sovereign but... so government control what you can what is what is legal tender not a bunch of freaks on the internet come on Right. And so if the government says it's not allowed as legal tender, the value will plummet like this. It can be regulated because ultimately there's no value behind it and governments have sovereignty backed by a military. <laughs> that's who decides what legal tender
0: is. Yes, but but until we have a, a, a and this is where, of course, all the pundits on the internet are going to go nuts. Until we have a one-world government that enforces that rule on everybody, you're going to have safe haven But that's well, an entirely different conversation, there, Oliver, about crypto. I could talk absolutely. to you about that all day long. Um, I think ultimately, I think you know what it really boils down to is no matter no matter what you do when it comes to to ransomware, you if you if you gotten hit by ransomware and you're in that position you know first of all obviously as Richard and yourself say you've got to do that analysis you know how bad is it is it real you know okay yes they've gotten in yes they've encrypted stuff but have they actually exfiltrated it or whatever can they gain access to it you know asset based encryption if you've encrypted that data yeah they can exfiltrate it all day long but as long as they don't have the keys it's going to take them years to, or if ever to decrypt it but um, if you are in a situation where, you know, you have been compromised, there is only two, two decisions to make, assuming you're not a, a children's hospital or a hospital or something like that. One, negotiate with them. Two, refuse and take the hit um, and hope that it's not too bad, you know, uh, depending upon what people have been talking about internally in their emails and dodgy information they've been storing and what type of organisation you are. This is why I think, you know, and as a, as a ending point, because obviously time is drawing on. Do you think as a final, final thought, it should be earmarked for information security professionals to look to train themselves in negotiation? Because if this is going to be as big as it is, uh, and it's going to continue on. Is it gonna wind up being part of our skill set that we have to look at as standard?
2: So generally, engineers, I'm generalizing here, but maybe not the best people to deal with people problems. But 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 overall, no, this is a speciality area. Honestly, just like an FBI has specialist negotiators, um, it's not our forte. We are so unusual. There's no other industry where we let engineers loose on spies and criminals. I don't know any other industry where that happens. But here we are, you know? And so I I think we need to move away from that because we do have people coming in from adjacent fields, criminology, law enforcement, behavioral psychiatry, to help us with that. Because ultimately, cybercrime is a people and technology problem. We've been strong on the technology side, but you need someone who is specialized in that area to do this. For SMBs, it could be someone who does it on a different fee basis, but it should still be someone who primarily deals with this because it's not a skill I would say it's a personality type, you know? Yeah. You need to really care when you're negotiating with people. I don't care about people as an example.
0: (laughs) Richard, what are your
1: thoughts? (laughs) So, yeah, look, I mean, Oliver's right. You can't put the onus of this on the engineers. It does take a very particular type of person to want to negotiate, to have the skills to negotiate, requires uh, a very different type of training and capability. I do believe that cybersecurity negotiators, because I'm not going to just put it the ransomware group, there's lots of other reasons why you'd want one, need to uh, be trained in cybersecurity, right? Because you can't just send a standard negotiator in who's, who's good at negotiating hostages, but has no idea about what's going on on the cybersecurity side. So if I was a CISO of an organization, For the larger enterprise, I would be absolutely looking at acquiring the skill set into, you know, my senior leadership team. Um, And to Oliver's point, if I'm an SMB, I'd be looking to external parties to have somebody by my side. Um, It should the worst happen. But I wouldn't forget, you know, don't take the eye off the ball around all of these points we talked about earlier that says, Let's reduce the risk of this being a huge fallout for my organization. Yes, I may have to pay some ransomware where it makes sense. You don't want to, but just do everything you can to mitigate the need to pay the full fee, if any at all, by following some really simple steps around, you know, backups, all the things we talked about earlier in, in the podcast. So, in depth. <laughs> I, I, I mean, but a typical example would be to, to say to
2: someone like, okay, so we've just warned our customers. We've already gone out. We're going to tell the media. It will take us five days to restore from backup. We can save ourselves a bit of money if you give it to us now for this this amount. You have to go into a hard nose. They're expecting it. They, they, they're known to negotiate, right? But be, be careful that we don't call your bluff if you're bluffing. Like with any negotiation, which is why it's a communications problem. Uh, that's, that's why you need a communications expert involved in it, yeah.
0: Well, guys... Thank you very much for for the discussion. It's been really interesting and I think it it deserves a little bit more of an exploration because, I mean, there's so much to to this particular thing. It sounds like there's a whole new discipline of InfoSec people who are going to come out of this who are, you know, ransomware negotiators because, quite frankly, it's getting so bad out there. I know a few, you know, we've got access to them. Uh, and it's quite funny. There was there was there was one that we use, and uh, he actually gets referred to by the criminals to companies that they they've compromised. It's hilarious. He said, "Yeah, I, I get I get recommendations. I'll get this guy. He'll help you out." It's like,
2: okay, that sounds like collusion, and it sounds like he's an enabler.
0: I'd be very well,
2: cautious around
0: that. That that was a question that was asked, but uh, <laughs> ultimately they just want to get paid, you know, and they don't want the the aggro from the company, so. I don't know. I don't know what the situation is there, but
2: that means they're sure they're going to get paid if they get them in. Surely you
1: want to get a negotiator who gets sure who makes sure they don't get paid, right? I don't know. It reduces the amount they're asking (laughs) for. It's a scale of economy thing, right? You want ten million on a hundred million dollar year business. I 'll give you five hundred grand i mean i 'm not we're, again we 're not saying on this podcast, please negotiate ransomware we 're saying no, no. I have the right people that can help you negotiate, but try not to be at the negotiation position in the first place <laughs> and the most important thing, check the legalities like we talked about what you can do
2: in reality, what you can do might be constrained by law. Make sure depending on where you are that you know your available options within the law because we're just assuming you get the chance to negotiate. There are talks about outlawing it in some places so we need to be cautious like have legal advice as well. It's not just a negotiator. Make sure you're doing what, you're, what you have to as well.
1: Yeah. And, and if, if you hire any negotiator that doesn't know who Chris Voss is don't hire them.
0: <laughs> it's been brilliant. It's been fantastic working with you guys and talking with, with you guys about some of the more frightening things in the industry one of which is ransomware we'll, we'll definitely uh, do a couple more of these but uh, thank you very much guys it's been an absolute pleasure and we'll speak to you all soon thank you thank you for listening to the Rosewire podcast if you like the podcast if you love the podcast please feel free to subscribe and if you have any questions please get in touch thank you very much and have a great day